let's go to ACL injuries. Back to the ACL injuries. What about it? What do you want to talk about? Cam, uh, Cam, have you, have you, did you do much with uh, Joe or that? Did you have many ACL rehabs to do? When I was at DeFranco's? Yeah. Like individually in the individual sector, in the private sector? No, not, not a ton. We, uh, we had one guy who was sort of a DeFranco icon. His name was Kareem Huggins, and he had torn his ACL and I think a couple other structures of his knee when he played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He was playing behind Cadillac Williams, I think it was like 2009, perhaps. And he was a you know low-level free agent kind of guy who had come out of Hofstra University, no longer has football. <laughs> and uh, he made the Buccaneers team, and I think it was his first start in place of Cadillac Williams, potentially, if I'm right. It was against the Saints, I believe. And it was kind of around the time the Saints had that bounty gate thing going on. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm not saying there's a coincidental uh, aspect to that or not, but they somebody went for his leg and tore his knee up pretty well. And, uh, you know, Joe DeFranco himself handled most of that work with him and they were just trying to get him back in the NFL. And um, it, there was so much damage to his knee that every time he went and did a physical, you know, with a, with an NFL team and all that, they just, they didn't really want to take the risk on him, but he was probably the, the guy that I know for sure did everything he could to come back from that. And it never quite came into fruition for him. You know, he would sign with a practice squad here and there, and then they would, they would sort of release him after that. And other teams wouldn't sign him because they didn't trust his knee and all that. So, to me, that was my first exposure to, wow, this is serious. You know, like this is a, these knee injuries are very serious. They need to be taken very seriously. And the return back from them needs to be taken very seriously as well. And so I was young, you know, he, when he tore his knee, I was, I had just become a freshman in college as a, as a student and as a player and all of that. And so um, for me, it was, it was a great first exposure to how important, uh, and how catastrophic some of these things can be and how they can be career ending, you know, depending on who you are. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, Fergus off just off air today and just through text message, Fergus and I were talking about how important return to play is and um, the aspect of that properly rehabbing, first of all, and then second of all, once sort of given over to a sports performance staff, strength staff, whatever the buzzword phrase for the staff might be today or this week um once they're handed over just making sure that that's they're continuing to progress in a way that's positive you know and that was a you know that was something that, that we spoke about today so it's it's pretty good timing to bring that up uh, on your part fergus uh and the other thing you mentioned too is that there's rarely such a thing as just an acl injury there's always so many complications um and those are usually the things that delay the actual like the surgery is one thing, and then you've got meniscus or you've got, uh, you know, medial ligaments, maybe PCL as well, if it's really bad. Yeah, you can see some pretty catastrophic injuries. <clears throat> I mean, I, one of the questions I got for you, Cam, about that in Fergus too would be how, I mean, back that far back, I, I guess you could say there was no psychological intervention or a mental skills coach 
to help along the process. But, you know, that we had a guest on Fernando not long ago, Trevor Hall, who talked about his work with uh, a rugby team and his, uh, you know, comeback, just the ability, like coming back because he's a psychiatrist by trade um, and how important that is in the rehab process. Because I've had guys in injuries be like, yeah, typically the ones that come out of it the best were the ones that were like, yeah, I admitted that I was in a bad spot psychologically at first. And once I addressed that and I just kind of took it for what it was and then I went from there, it got so much better. Um, that's my two cents into this as we keep going. Yeah, I think the first thing is that, well, there's, there, there are many things, but one of the first things that... Uh, it's a player is when they're not playing, that's their identity gone. So they can't, you know, they can't express themselves. But, you know, if you present it in the right way, it's an incredible opportunity to work on things that you, that for some superstars, like they've been playing with limitations and weaknesses, maybe other injuries as well. And it's an opportunity, not just to rehab those, to work on those, but also to study the game. Um, but again, it all comes down to how you want to, you know, how you want to, like you said, psychologically present it and frame it for the athlete. Um, because it, it's, it's certainly a challenge. It's really interesting watching the guys who come back well and, you know, the guys who struggle. And it's a long journey as well. It's a long, long journey. Um, yeah, we had, uh, <coughs> we had Tim Hewitt come and present to us at, at Indiana. And, you know, he's one of the leading researchers on ACL reconstruction and rehab and just everything associated with mechanisms of injury. And he put it very bluntly to us where he said, you know, it's really some people, they look to the freaks, you know, like people look to the outliers. Some mm -hmm. of these guys that come back in six months and they can perform at a high level. He's like, that's such a rare occurrence. And he's like, to be honest, in his opinion, it takes about two years to come back from one ACL tear um in terms of being a holistically healthy athlete again to where you trust the knee you're psychologically confident in your ability to perform at a high level and stay safe doing so and so to hear something like that i mean it gives you just an idea of the magnitude of how catastrophic these injuries can be is that even if you're able to return to sport the next year within the next you know nine to 12 months we'll say Taking a quick break from the show to tell you about our deal we have going on right now in December. If you sign up for Fundamentals Level 1, you will get one free year at Strength Coach Network. That's right. Sign up for Fundamentals, our 20-hour long-form education course that has information on every topic in strength and conditioning that will make you a better strength coach, regardless of the field that you're in. Not only if you're a strength coach, personal trainer, athletic trainer, physio, this is for you because all the education about progressions, regressions, motor learning, speed, agility, jumps, you name it, we have information in it. So sign up for Fundamentals, get a free year at Strength Coach Network. Click the link down below. Let's get back to the show. You're still not feeling yourself for possibly another 12 months after that. And it's just the window of opportunity to play at a high level you know, if you're somebody who's who really needs to put it on display at the collegiate level in order to go on to the professional level, I mean, that window is so small to lose two years of high function ability. It's, it's just, it has a massive impact. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a good point about the psychological aspect of that. I think we, 
we overemphasize a lot of these physical, physiological elements, in my opinion. And now, you know, being three years in team sport directly, um, it's moving from the private sector into that role. I had some sense of what it was like to deal with the athlete from a psychological perspective when I was in the private sector, but I typically saw them at their best because they were paying me to train them in the off season and all of, all of that. I, I rarely saw the ups and downs in season. And so now working in a true team sports setting, that's been massive for my own education is, is seeing how the psychology of the athlete ebbs and flows throughout the year um, in season, out of season, it doesn't matter. Academic successes, academic failures, and everything else socially going on with them, and socially in terms of internally with the team as well, and the and the way that there's collaborative efforts there, and communication, or perhaps lack of lack thereof, both, uh, and how it, it just impacts everybody and everything, and the and the tribe mentality and all of that. It's it's, it's all fascinating stuff. Um, <clears throat> I think I've seen several cases on the different parts of the spectrum. So, for example, when I was in field hockey, it was a very normal injury for, for, for the girls. So it was kind of like normalized. So it wasn't the end of the world. Whereas maybe in um, football or soccer for people, the way they call it, a knee is just like for people that are not used to contact or like being broken and stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> give or take the how complicated the injury is, you know, if it's just, like you said, like just the ACL or, or something else or what's the repair like. But when you were talking about the two years to get back to their level, I was thinking of a guy I used to train, like he he got his ACL, um, his second ACL, so different leg and the quarterfinals of the Olympic Games. And then it took him the nine to 10 months to get back. And this year he's back on the series. And man, I have to say, he's probably the best player in the series. So maybe because it's a contact sport that people are kind of used to, maybe because he did it before, maybe that combination between his genes, his mental strength and his previous experience, very disciplined guy, very like if you is a typical guy that would train during COVID on his own and would come better. Do you know what I mean? Like that's like the personality combination adversity having done his other knee. So this time he was like, I know what it is. And I know what I did great last time, but I also know what I can do better this time. So he came back even stronger. And I'm like, wow, probably like one the one percenters that actually come out that way, right? So I got I got something for that before Fergus. Yeah. I, it was a, a kid that I had uh, had worked with and very similar, like got back. I think within six months, maybe even less. I don't know. It was it was short turnaround, Risk. but checked all the boxes off. Like it was above ninety percent strength, speed, everything. Um, worked into practice. Kid had a uh, a pick six and hurt it on the return and had and re 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 injured the knee and had to get surgery again. And it was just like, you know, my wife's an athletic trainer. So she's kind of always, I'm getting her side of the things too and, and research. And she's just like, you know, pretty much anything above nine months, it, it just how much more likelihood, right? You're just sticking your hand in that jar and your likelihood of pulling out, you know, one of the balls that says injury versus health is just way increased. Um, but it just, it goes, like you said, you interrupted and you said risk and you're hundred percent right. 
even though like all of our markers as strength and conditioning coaches would be like, well, look, but look, but look, and it's just like, you have to understand healing. And like what Cam said with the two year thing, you know, that's what I've, I've seen with other guys that have had that injury. Like, and like he said, they truly just trust it. Yeah. Maybe in a full year they're playing again. And then now they can have another full year of real training to be like, okay, yeah, no, this knee is good and not feel like they've been deceiving themselves to be able to be training. Well, I think that's why I think it's in, in game changer that I think there's nine, I have nine stages of, of recovery, but the last three are return to train, return to play. But what Cam's talking about is that last 12 months, which is return to perform. So you can get back possibly training in six months, possibly playing in six months. You're pushing it, but then your your phase of return to perform. And when I say perform, I mean better than you were. Uh, that's going to take another 12 months because there's so many things. The other thing people um, sometimes forget is once there's a knife involved, there's so much of the communication system, whether it's fashion, nerves, everything that has been just literally... I don't want to say butchered, but it has. It's been so that all of that patterning and uh, has to be reintroduced and stabilized again. So uh, it is, it takes, a, it takes a long, long. So, you know, I think, I think there's been one or two guys have come back allegedly after four months. I would not, I would not like to be like, maybe if that's an Olympics or a final or something and you make it fair enough, but coming back after uh, four months is, um, that's a hell of a risk. Have any of you guys heard where sport coaches will say, oh, well, so-and-so, I'm sending him to this surgeon who specializes in expedited yeah. ACL. Re like, yeah, I've heard coaches right. say that. Right. Now, nobody say, that I've worked with, I've heard colleagues say yeah. that they've heard that. I think, I think um, Fergus, I hear a point there. Sometimes if there's something like worth risking, and I mean, you know, your chances are very slim, but there is a point of like, oh, I can't really, I don't really have a year. It has to be now because I'm playing for a contract for my life or whatever. Well, not for your life, but you know what I mean? Um, but then is that thing where I'm terrible at quoting papers and such, but there's, there's many studies that show that um, below the nine months, the, the, you know, the likelihood of re-injury and or other stuff, even if you like, you get all your markers is way higher. And um, I was talking to a player the other day. He did like a, like an ACL with like, a lot of stuff with him as well so they they say he's going to be at least for a year and he was telling me how i mean for this for us this is obvious like he was saying such and such when he was this far was running or whatever whatever for us is obvious but i had to explain to him it's like you know i always look at injuries and three big things you know your times your surgery timeline right so they say the graft or whatever is going to take at least this much how your body reacts to training and also your confidence those three if you're lacking those, I don't care how good the timeline is, how well your body's reacted, but you're not confident enough to go back and run and get tackled or, or hit someone, you're not back on. Uh, if you're very confident and then the timeline's right, but you haven't done the work, you're not back on. Your body's reacting like very promising and your mindset is amazing, but you're not quite there with a timeline of, you know, what the doctors say, you're not going back on. You know, it has to be, has to take all these things. Yeah, and, and on that... I think Justin, you touched on it earlier. One of the biggest things is uh, learning learning how to fall again, and having the having the ability to fall and take contact, and that actually could be done a lot earlier and a lot safer. 
I'm not saying that you're going to speed it up necessarily, but you can certainly introduce that with with players. But I think that um, I think it's probably it's healthier to have the conversation around getting somebody back to performance healthy rather than the speed of time. Sure, it's amazing. Somebody comes back in four months or six months. It is. It's, it's remarkable. But, you know, are they are they truly healthy and are they going to be able to sustain that for a period of time? And the other thing, too, is that, uh, like, uh, Fernando, you mentioned about uh, re-injury. But also, uh, you're talking about re-injury of the ACL. There's probably, you know, you know, there's a whole load of, load of other injuries that may or may not be recorded. You know, the opposite ankle, groin, whatever. So there's... Oh, there's muscle. A, I think there's always for the big... There was a record in the... Uh... I think in the Aussie rugby union, everyone had like one of the big surgeries, like either shoulder or knee. They end up having at some point like a calf or hamstring. It's probably like due to not properly loading or, you know, whatever. But it was like they sort of anecdotally noticed that at least, even if it was just like a niggle at some point, they would happen because maybe, you know, they weren't really ready for that high impact, high speed. What's up, strength coaches? Taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky Midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members-only forum. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. It's just comp it's compensating. You know, you either know or you're not physically able to take the load. So you're going to compensate on the other side. Um, and, you know, in that instance, particularly in a contact sport, it's going to be it's going to be very risky. But in a funny way, in contact sports, sometimes it might even be a little bit safer because once you're hit, you're out of it. But the non-contact injuries are the saddest to see. And I think with ACL injuries in particular, uh, I think a lot of that comes down to nervous system fatigue where players aren't fully rested or they're fatigued and they can't adjust, you know, instinctively to changes in surface or to contact. And that's when, when it happens. So it may or may not be a strength issue. Um, but I, I think that, I think that's something, again, that's very difficult to measure. Fergus, I think, in my opinion, you bring up a really good point about the neural mechanisms associated with it and how that plays a part into coordinating the limb. Um, you know, that's something that we, we talked about to go back to, uh, when, uh, we talked, we spoke about all the ACL when we were presented to here, um, by Tim Hewitt, you know, he talked about the damage to the mechanoreceptors around the joint as well, and how the, the coordination of those uh, structures, those neural structures, take so much longer to potentially come back. And uh, but in general, just if that's operating at a high level, could that help potentially alleviate the injury in the first place? You know, so mm -hmm. we think about nervous system actions in terms of preflexive or reflexive actions, especially in response to perceptual stimuli in a more agile environment, you know, that's, that seems to be something they're talking about more with ACL injury is the, 
perception, action, couplings, and, and all of that. I think that that's a necessary conversation to have um, because, you know, for example, we've seen we've seen it in American football where it's like, oh, let's just decide to have the quarterback go live today. He hasn't been live in you know, 12 months, but let's, let's just see how he does in spring ball here. And, uh, <laughs> he makes one cut against a defender completely non-contact related and goes down, grabs his knee, you know, um, I've seen it happen. So what's happening there is the guy not strong enough. Is he not powerful enough It's well? He's, he's not seen that from a perceptual cognitive standpoint where somebody's come at him and he's had to react to it. You know, since some of these guys in some of the ways that practice is structured, which might go into the next discussion point, I don't know. But a lot of times you see it in American football where quarterbacks, especially at that position, they're they're so afraid to give them exposure to certain situations that um, you think about this guy who might be a third string quarterback and maybe he's not he hasn't cut against somebody in a live scenario since he played in high school and now he's a sophomore in college. So it's been like two years since he's done it because he, he hasn't played in the games. You know, he had a little bit of exposure to spring ball, but he's wearing a blue Jersey. So everybody's staying away from him. And then, you know, if you just randomly decide, well, let's go live with him and just see what happens. And then he, you know, something like that occurs. I'm not saying I know how to prevent it, but I think there's something involved there with what kind of representative situations are they being exposed to in terms of how it relates to what's asked of them in terms of the game demands and everybody thinks physiological game demands. Well, what about coordinated demands? What about, you know, the, just the dynamics of the sport in general and how the sport operates, just what are they going to be asked to do from a task standpoint? And what is, what are all the elements involved in that? Not just physiological, but psychological, technical, tactical, all of the factors that come together in that one instantaneous moment, is he prepared as best as possible for that moment or not? And that's something that's, you always have to ask yourself. It's never going to be perfect, but I, I just think it's something that we always have to ask ourselves. Hearing you talk about that makes me think about, um, obviously the stuff that you guys have written in the process, um, as well as the stuff that like, you know, in, in the process with the games and the, like the, the need for those in the off season for that perception coupling, but it also made me think about a lot of the stuff that DeMarco was doing because he felt, and maybe this, maybe it, cause I know you and Cam, you and him have a good relationship and have talked about it and me, I don't know which came first, but you know, seeing the things that he's put out there with his, with his staff where they would do um, you know, how they break it down, mirror dodge uh, chaser and I forget the other one and all their progressions, regressions, but not only just that, but how he would go through their warmups. And again, it's, that's all public knowledge on their Instagram, but how it would be like, okay, you know, Cam and I are lining up next to each other. I'm going to do a forward lunge. I'm going to accelerate out of it and you have to react to me, right? The rabbit and chaser just do the whole warmup. So that way they're training that perception coupling in the quote unquote off season, but it is a skill that needs to be trained. Um, my question to all of you guys would be, we just talked about that example. What are some other low level ways that we can get coaches to want to do that in a way that they'll feel acceptable doing it? Because maybe they're like, oh, well, games aren't hard enough or aren't fun enough. And it's not regimented and on a lot. Like, how can we get that skill trained to help the athletes out, but also make the hard coaches that maybe don't want to do that stuff do it? 
Well, one of there's there's a few things. One is uh, <clears throat> we we love linear work because we can measure it, and the the tempo concept is brilliant because we can measure it. And we can measure distances, and it's easy. It's more difficult, of course, to put a measurement on small sided games and agility and low intensity work, but it's still better overall. And here's the really important point about low intensity games: you still get all of the very same effects if you were just to do straight line tempo and you're getting that perception and the speed, the closing, the reaction, all of those things. And I think a lot of it comes down to coaches having the courage to do the right thing, not just simply to copy what everyone else is doing on the point about games, not being hard enough. <laughs> trust me, if you make it competitive, guys are going to work hard. In fact, possibly harder and they will be more involved as well. Um, on the idea that uh, from a skill perspective, perspective as well, well, the one thing that tempo doesn't give you is it doesn't give you any deceleration, it doesn't give you any reaction. So you, if you construct your small sided games intelligently, you're getting all of those effects and a multitude of others that are going to help with injury prevention. You can play, you know, low intensity, small sided games, high intensity, manipulate space numbers, all of those things. Um, and so I think that it's certainly a huge advantage when it comes to injury prevention. Oh, and I, I agree with you that they can be hard, <laughs> you know, again, we're trying, we're, we're talking, I feel like with coaches that understand that things versus the mm. other ones, um, you know, simplistically in my head, the way that we've been able to, if you don't have GPS, cause we're fortunate enough to have GPS. So that way we can see it and live track it and be able to stay longer or, you know, adjust on the fly, much like practice, um, you know, being able to just constrain the space, the time uh, and the number of people within it to continue to force the movement, whether we want to see A cells or D cells. But Fergus, I remember you talking about that same exact concept about tempos uh, linear running, I think it was back in 2018 or 2019 when you presented at, um, at oh, G-Dub, right? With that hammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you talked about the same premise and that was kind of where I understood like, okay, with my sport, he's 100% right. So that's where we started the idea of like, okay, what can we do change in direction tempos and how can we do it with, you know, one or two, like, okay, let's start off with one change of direction or two change in directions. Then it's like, oh, well, if we can do that, then, you know, that's probably where, you know, Nick's eight vector stuff maybe came from and, then you go with your linear, your curve of linear tempos and just all of those different laying down the fascial lines. Um, because again, it's not just all straight line. Um, do well, we want to? One, 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 one of the things, one of the things, Justin, as well, is that I, I understand GPS is important, no doubt. But I think, all, I think, I think a lot of coaches underestimate the value of video and watching and learning how to how, learning how to spot biomechanical issues you know, as their players are actually working. Like I remember years ago in rugby, one of the problems, remember, uh, so we'd finish a game, might do a cool down, the following day we're doing recovery. As strength coaches, we never got a chance to, or never made the time to actually sit with the coaches and watch the game and, and understand what they were looking for. And I, I think that, you know, watching, recording and filming practice and filming the small side of games can possibly give, and again, it is subjective, but it's incredibly valuable looking at movement patterns, 
even uh, like, you know, Cam's talking about the quarterback, watching stride length, watching sh shoulder mobility. Oh, he's got a short stride length. Well, he's got no mobility in his shoulders. So, okay, let's, let's work on that. Let's put him back in, see, does he improve? Those kind of things. So um, I think, and again, the ideal combination is video and GPS, but you can get a lot from video, a lot from video. <laughs> yeah i agree with you the thing is um with coaches that sometimes is a really um hard wall to climb over just to you know bring down because i remember doing some like reactive stuff or like those dribbles but when someone was like running backwards and it's just trying to lose him right and he goes no 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 it's just rugby we run forward you don't run backwards and i'm like but when they make a break sometimes which is all we like when we overlapped as defenders, the last defender sometimes has to run backwards, kind of turned. And that's usually when they fall because someone cuts in and he's running backwards. He's not used to running backwards. So he just trips with his own legs. He goes, no, no, that's bad habits. But there's the same guy that said that the bear crawls were a bad habit because they, were, they would put their hands on the rock and that was a penalty. And I'm like, well, we do that already. So it's definitely not from the bear crawls. <laughs> it has to do with being late to something and not controlling your body and like, it's like, oh, give us an exercise to control our bodies. I'm like, what? But you know what I mean? Like, and, and this is where we get to the bigger problem. Like you start going further and further up and you realize, well, this is not about sets and reps, isn't it? It's just, as we speak in different languages, uh, so you become a negotiator, right? Maybe it's just because I'm reading that book, like splitting the difference. Uh, but I'm like a negotiator mode, like the, the understanding how to get what you want to help others, not just being like me against you or being right or wrong, you know? So it's, it's a huge problem. It's amazing. That's that's probably why we like working in sports. Uh, and team sports has uh, have loads of these scenarios, right? We're just thinking like, how am I going to do that? Lima, just to speak to your point as somebody who's working in, in college football, college American football, I really resonate with what you said about coaches might come in and look at it and think this doesn't look hard enough right and so something I've tried to wrap my head around is finding ways to meet everybody in the middle and so for example we don't like that our players are constantly on their phones all the time in the hallways and don't even look up and see where they're going and they're crashing into the walls as they turn the corner of the facility and this and that right but at the same time, they're going to do it when we have to accept the fact that that's just how they're going to operate. So how do we how do we meet them in the middle? And, you know, if we hang up a big poster board and they don't see it because they're on their phone and they're looking at it. Well, maybe we send something to their phone because they're already looking at. the phone. <laughs> so it's just thinking of different ways to, uh, you know, instead of just sort of. Trying to work against so much friction, can we can we meet everybody in the middle and find a way to get the desired effect? while empowering everybody else throughout the organization and so what i mean by that is you know let's say for example in college football we have certain rules and regulations that seem to be changing every single year like college football as a sport and the rules and everything associated with it it just seems to be changing constantly and when are the coaches allowed to work with the players when are they not all of these different rules and things but it seems that they're starting to give more slack to the coaches the technical tactical coaches to where they're allowed a little bit more time with these players and so can we use that to our advantage where i would love to go and 
sit down with a guy like Sean Mishka or Fergus or whoever and say, let me just create the perfect small sided <laughs> game action, all of these things. And, and I can run it and I can coach it and I can try to, you know, encourage the proper intent of this game and that the hardest competitive action I've seen from our players here is not when we've given them something that's a, a reactive activity that I've designed or one of us have designed. It's one that feels significantly more like the sport because they're doing something like a captain's practice, a captain's run, or they're doing individualized work with their position coaches or, or whatever it might be. But something, as soon as you flip that switch and it's like, hey, listen, this is football mode now, all of a sudden they're going so much harder than they would if it was a generic drill, basically training the same thing. There's something about that mentality of like, well, coach is here, it's football now. So can we take advantage of that and communicate, you know, with our coaches in ways that we just try to understand what they're trying to get done. And so we, we actually had a coach here um, who, who helped us out this past season and sort of took over our offensive line in the midseason. And, and his name's Rod Carey. He had a really good point, I thought, which is he said, you know, in football, we think of, they, they call it good on good. So if I have a team period of 11 on 11, I have the, the ones against the twos, you know, the one O against the two D or the one D against the two O. And so it's, it's our two deep players playing against each other. Maybe it's starters against each other and we're servicing each other and all of that. He said, well, good and good has layers to it. You know, good on good doesn't have to be just 11 on 11. It could be one on one, two on two, two on one. You know, he was talking specifically from an offensive line perspective. If they do like a, a period like pods or something where it's two, two offensive linemen against one defensive lineman and they're working how they, uh, how they run block together while the defensive lineman's working, how he gets off a double team of run blocking, you know, if it's pass rush, things like that. And so to me, it was great to hear a technical tactical coach say that because now what he's essentially saying is that you can be representative of the game in various fractal layers of the game. It doesn't just have to be full on 11 on 11 football. It can be seven on seven, two on three, whatever. You just set up a scenario and make it feel like the game. And so the coaches thinking more in that manner, I think that's where we're going to start to find our successes. Hopefully that that's where we can, we can communicate and, and try to, to have these conversations of like, well, what is it that you're actually trying to get accomplished with this position group, you know, and just allow them to feel empowered. And they tell you like, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I want to see on game day. This is what I want to accomplish and all of these, all of these things. And then you can start having the conversation of, you know, maybe at that point you bring up, okay, so you say you want this to be done. I'm just curious, what are some of the activities that you're doing in practice to, reinforce those things that you're looking for and then it, it you know kind of causes them to think about it a little bit more perhaps and maybe they don't but at least now we're starting to think of it as like can i meet them in the middle instead of me coming in and saying i have the answer i know what we need to do it's more of just like i need to know from your perspective and the technical tactical knowledge that you have what you're trying to get accomplished in the context of the game and how can I support that by developing them physically and having the fitness qualities to allow them to even be able to do that to begin with? And two, like, where is the marriage between when we have, let's say we have a team run and we're, we're taking them through some activities and they're going to be with the coaches afterwards. Like, what's the organization between all of that? And can that become more of a marriage over time? And it's, it's easier said than done because there's different personalities and temperaments and egos involved, but I think that's where a lot of 
some of these efforts need to go is more of collaboration with these coaches um, as opposed to, well, this coach doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm just going to look it up myself and get all these seminars and I'm going to come up with a really good idea and, and put it into play, you know? So to me, I think it's just from my experience and what I've seen now in college football, I think that it's, it's better served to try and find as many ways to collaborate as possible. And then sure, if we see the gaps that are not being filled and we can fill them, let's do that. But if we can start with developing some of these qualities in situ, if you will, like just living in the sport itself. Um, and we kind of work backwards from that. I think that's, that's more of where my mindset's going personally at this point and what I feel might be most beneficial that speaks to the players the most that they can connect with the most as well. It's my opinion, but just putting it out there. I mean, you just said so much and that was, I think it was perfect. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, I feel like you not only spoke to me, but I feel like I hope you spoke to the rest of the listeners out there. Like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like how can that, how can that marriage exist? And then how do you do that when it's okay? Head strength and conditioning coach, head sport coach, let's, not just with American football, like you talked about, but how can you have those conversations in your high performance meetings of, okay, if our goal is to keep you on the field, what does it look like in your in-season? What does it look like in your preseason prep? What does it look like in your non-competitive season? And then how do we work back from there to make sure that we're preparing you from all of those four different co-actors? Like, that was perfect. Let's change gears to the psychology and ebbs and flows of being in team sports because like you you did talk about it originally, Cam, um, that's real, that happens. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is becoming a growing trend is the ability just to talk about those things and have those safe spaces. Um, where do you guys see this going in the next one, three, five, ten years? Who wants, who wants to go first? <laughs> you spoke first, Fernando. You got it. That's you. Yeah. No one wants to touch that one, man. You should review your questions. That was about. I'll question. say it again. I mean, like, no, 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 no. I mean, it was a good one. Um, I was thinking something I read the other day. Um. I don't know if you guys follow the sport, but Argentina's made it to the World Cup final, yeah, against France. Hold on, before and we talk about that, can we talk about the guy that misplaced his bet on the wrong freaking sport, right? What? Somebody, oh, yeah. Yeah. I read about that. Yes. Some dude. 100, uh, what was it, eight, 18 to 1? Again, and it wasn't like, he didn't put the house on it, but he put like, you know, I think, I think it was 48 euro. So, something yeah, like that for like so for argentina to win the world cup but he did it in rugby not uh football <laughs> he got the world cup. yeah he bet for next year this, this year uh, that's like that's that's like the time years ago i was booking a car a rental car rental in dublin and so i go on the website or hertz or whatever and book the car i turn up at dublin airport to collect my car and they go there's no record here no record at all i said i have here's the thing and they, they google it yeah you booked a car in dublin california um yeah so the way um my 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 start relates to the to the the answer is that i was reading an article the other day about don't know if you follow my sport but in argentina we used to have maradona may he rest in peace and 
the typical leadership in um I don't I can't say soccer, but you know, soccer for our listeners, most most are American, um, was this guy who, you know, is in front of the pack and he fights and he kicks when he's kicked and gets a red car and like, you know, chest up and cocky and like comes from the hood and like fights everyone, right? So Messi for 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 many years, he was very resisted back home because he's pretty much autistic, right? He has a, a principle of Asperger's and he left the country when he was very young. And he's been raised in Spain, but chose to play for Argentina. And he hasn't won the World Cup yet, so that's why I don't like him. But this article was interesting because they were talking about how types of leadership are changing, right? So now this new Argentinian... Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. ...team who is a, is a star team, not a team of stars, except for him uh they have time to see their families and no one's out there you know talking about like showing off their cars or like being cocky or being bullies they just like they look like a family and and their leader is one of the most quiet guys you, you you've ever you'll ever see uh and he just plays and he just wants to play and you know everything's very private so i think um you know, connecting to your question, I think there's, there's a change in leadership that will definitely require a different kind of skill set from from staff and people around them, because now it's about having a safe space and, you know, saying how you feel and like saying, you know what, I'm a sub and it sucks to be a sub, but I still want to want the team to do well. So accepting there's the stuff that's not always great. So actually not being strong enough to to say if you don't like something, in a respectful manner. So um, that gives room for, for good and bad things in terms of people doing the psychology of sport because it is, it's not new, but you know what I mean? So suddenly all these coaches appear, <laughs> life coaches, and like they, they tell athletes how to focus, um, you know, with all these techniques that don't apply. So I think it's a, it's a very developing area of sport, but definitely necessarily uh, moving into the future because, you know, we now have social media and you make a mistake and like 50 million people comment on it. And some some of them say, I hope you die or something like that. So it's a different. No, Justin, you're laughing, but mate, you don't even have to I'm go. I'm laughing because it's so messed up. That's why. Like, that's just mate, my awkward tick of go, like, just how awful that is. You don't even have to go as far as messy. You can go like, you know, high school or club sports. People just go on anonymous. Oh, yeah. Like that. You say, oh, mate, you suck. Like, you... you you know, and I know players for a fact, you know, you think they're millionaires, they don't really care. They read the comments. 100%. I mean, shit, people do that because of stupid fantasy football or fantasy sports. It's even worse. <laughs> so if you imagine a guy who's, who's a millionaire and plays the highest level of sport and goes and reads the comments from an average Joe sitting in his house, telling him he sucks and actually gets affected by it. There's so many things you can tap on <laughs> into that thing. You know what I mean? Like this is more than one problem, but I think is um, you know, it's redefining a bit of the landscape. I don't know if you guys agree. I think so too. I, I definitely do. Fergus, go ahead with what you're gonna say. No, I was just gonna say if you haven't seen the Carlos uh Bellardo documentary, Fernando, about um no. Fergus on HBO. Uh, so he was one he was one of the, the the managers during Maradona's period, but fascinating guy. He was a doctor. I think he might have been oh, the Bilardo one, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you say it in Irish, so I couldn't understand it. 
See, see, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, getting insulted, and it's not, it's not, it's not even a comment on Twitter. <laughs> hey, this is live. My feelings, you know my feelings are hurt. My feelings are hurt. I am triggered. Are you triggered? I'm triggered. Yeah. I think I'm triggered uh, that you triggered. Snowflake. Um, I think, uh, I think one of the, one of the really interesting things, though, like fundamental to all of this, is that it's not that long ago players were amateur. You know, it's not that many generations ago. And so if you look at the psychological profile of previous generations, it is you're dealing with a uh, not a different athlete, but they've come through a different pathway. So you mentioned Messi, for example, you know, he was a Barcelona from a very, very young age. And so they've been in that pipeline. So I think it's very different. I had this conversation actually with Dean Benton, uh, an Australian strength coach, brilliant guy, but we were talking about at an international team as well, it's incredibly, it's infinitely more difficult because you pull guys together for a very short period of time. You don't get the opportunity to train them physically to the same degree. So a lot of it is around character culture and if you want to call it psychology. Um, but I think that uh, it was interesting actually many years ago, Clive Woodward, who was the, the England rugby coach, remember spending a brilliant morning with him one time, but he said all of his staff, all of his staff had actually been teachers originally. Every single coach was a teacher and he didn't have a psychologist per se on board. And he wanted to empower his coaches to deliver the, the psychology, if you will, to be able to support them. And I think, I think sometimes your strength coach, for example, who spends two hours or three hours a day with the guys, maybe longer, he has a bigger impact on the psychology of the team than the psychologist who might see four guys for 20 minutes in a dark room once a week. So I think it's, I think the psychology, particularly of the head coach as well, their character, uh, their uh, presentation, their manner, how they carry themselves, that everybody looks to the top. Um, like think about it, right? You're in the locker room, you're, you know, 10 scores down, Everybody has their head down. Head coach comes in. Now, everybody's watching his body language. If he's coming in stooped low, that's going to, that's going to But if he comes in enthusiastic, everybody suddenly, all of a sudden, their mood changes. Everybody looks to the top and it filters down. So it is very, it is very, very important. I, th I, think it's, uh, I think it's very unique as well. And then, you know, you also have the, the unique cultural uh, personalities as well, what would work in one country, or we're just talking about the World Cup, for example, but what might work in one country is would never work in another, you know, just culturally wise. And I think that's something to be very aware of. You know, I've had to move from team to team and you see it straight off the bat. You come in with the preconceived ideas early on in your career and you think, oh, I can do it this way. And you learn very, very quickly. No, it's not going to work. Not what I do, but how I did it is not going to work. Yeah. I'm going to have yeah. to be softer or I can be more forceful. But I think having the awareness is the most important thing. That's that's the, the first starting point. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. The thing I'm a bit reluctant with, and if any sports psychologists are listening to this, don't take it personal, yeah? But the thing is, like you said, if there's no... I'll say this. If there's no cohesion or consistency in the message throughout the team there's no point in saying like we have mental issues bring a psychologist and then coaches or whoever treat the players in a way 
that's not you know aligned to getting everyone together so it's not like you know solving it by just bringing someone who knows psychology you know well, well, so, well, think, well th think about it fernando like you got a guy who's struggling with confidence you know and you see you bring a psychologist in he spends 45 minutes a week with them and then they go into the gym every single day and the strength coach you may or may not be aware of this crisis is just beating the guy down in it like but but you know yeah just as as you would do because you want to encourage him you think he's lazy it's actually a self-esteem issue or something else yeah. or a self-worth issue and so you can undo it very very quickly that's where that you're right the cohesion and alignment but that also plays into you know the game model how you're going to play the game are you going to play it in an aggressive way is that the culture is that the environment how are we going yeah. to support guys it's all also, it's all incredibly uh it's all interlinked yeah also bringing a guy who's be like okay so you have confidence so are you going to sit with psychologists you're going to ask you what's wrong with you are we going to fix it I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> right. You know, I, used, I, I used to say I've never met a good sports psychologist. Now that's, a, that's a hell of a statement, but that's a while ago. I, uh, I'm not, I might not say that now, but it's very, very difficult to find somebody who truly appreciates the intricacies of, of performing at a high level. And, uh, and also, there are many of the issues that you find at the professional level I've got nothing to do with the game. They can all play the game. You know, the I can say that I can say it on this on this podcast, but I used to joke like the definition of stress was when your mortgage, your wife, and your mistress were all a month late. <laughs> like, that's, got, that's got nothing to do. That's got nothing to do with the game. <laughs> uh, but, title. It's, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I mean. Um, um I don't know if a player was telling me that I suck as a coach the other day, but he was saying like that getting to know people, getting to connect with people is not a gift that everyone has. He was telling me that I had it, but maybe it was because I sucked at coaching or something. Um, but it's about it's about relationships, 100%, right? So I read the other day that, you know, um, coaching is, is science and art. Everyone can access science, not everyone can access the art bit, you know? Just spending time and you cannot really um, pretend to do it. You can't really rush it um and like you said with sports now I, i've been part of sports that you get into a, a team and there's all these different cultures right so let's say maybe um it's latin predominant not latino so for example like spanish french uh italian maybe south americans but it's a team in england right so psychologist is, is english right so guys let's get a group let's find this, these leaders and like let's put on these labels and but maybe the guys are just like genuinely cold and they're genuinely depressed because it's 3 p.m and it's it's nighttime <laughs> and you're trying to force them to be in a group and talk about what they think and that's how no that's not how it works or maybe that's not how it works for that group so like you said the generic um the generic solutions sometimes just end up backfiring but what's the right solution for psychology and you know timing in sport it's just so general it's impossible to encapsulate right the, the the best way i've seen it work in in teams is having uh a psychologist or sometimes even just a senior retired coach working mm -hmm. with the head coach and never talking to the players or coaches being a confidant being somebody who observes training and saying hey what did you you know how did you think that practice went do you think you were too easy what you know but Sim and the other thing too is 
simply adding another voice to the mix would be a freaking disaster. Now you guys don't know who to listen to, you know? You got the coach up there banging the banging the whiteboard and then you got somebody coming in saying, take a deep breath, we're gonna relax now, smell the roses, you know? Longer and pink tomorrow. Like it like but I, I think having that singular mm. voice helps with cohesion, but also having somebody that the coach can can speak to, can bounce ideas off in a trusting way becomes really important. And uh I think it was Freud said that the Irish are the only race that are impervious to psychoanalysis. Um, so <laughs> Justin Justin loves that one, but I, but but I I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I think understanding the cultures and the mindset is so 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 uh, challenging. I've seen uh, I've seen a coach screaming, "Control your emotions!" When he was banging a whiteboard. <laughs> Camel's going. Uh, Camel's going. story. You. Control your emotions. It's like hammering around, and you're like, "What?" He was like, "Why are you not controlled?" Can you stop screaming to us, please? Thank you. Cam, I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, in the, in the team environment, do do you find that it, the the numbers, right, the number of guys that you're trying to keep a a pulse on, that must that that must be a challenge. That must be you know yeah no absolutely I, I mean you have especially when we had our COVID overlap year when we had over 130 players on the team um but any normalized year you're looking at probably on average 120 players on the team and so you have to consider all of these things you have to ensure that you're able to um sorry I'm getting a call I'm trying to get out of the call here <laughs> should have should have put my phone on airplane mode podcast this is real live entertainment <laughs> uh it's my dad calling me i'm gonna get on him for that later um take it dad you're a podcast and just put on. <laughs> what do you think about managing the psychology of 120 people <laughs> um, no so i think that it's seemingly not possible to get it right but i do think that um the effort needs to be there and i think it's something that you know if we want to toss around the word sports performance as opposed to strength and conditioning you know if i want to sit on my high horse and say no i'm not just strength and conditioning i'm a sports performance specialist great then i need to know every single thing associated with sports performance because that's what i'm that's the title i'm giving myself and that includes psychology not just sports psychology general psychology addiction psychology i mean everything right so whether, whether whether you like whether you like it or not you are having a psychological impact on every on every player correct so you know you better i think i think you brought it up you brought up a great point fergus is is um those who will have the most psychological impact on the players are the ones with which they're most integrated. And that happens to be the strength coach more than anybody else, just by nature of the job. Now, I'm not saying every strength coach needs to be a, a PhD in psychology, but we, we probably need to pull our weight to learn a little bit more about human behavior. Um, and to the other point of, of what Fernando was saying is that if they're going to uh, employ a sports psychologist who is going to be a salaried position and involved with the players 
then it's my opinion that to do it properly, they need to be integrated into the team. And so like they, they don't just have, they don't just get to sit in their offices and say, office and say, come see me, you know, that's just, that's so lacking in context. It makes me want to throw up like, no, listen, but, if you, but, but, but also th think, think about it as well. You can have a far greater force multiplier effect as a psychologist working with coaches who can go forward agree then you can deal with with the particularly challenging issues as opposed to like you said sitting in your room waiting for someone to knock on your door you know with blood on their hands and an axe in their you know in their bag like i mean it's a bit late then <laughs> well exactly right but let, let's say that somebody is employed and they're being pitched as hey we have the sports psychologist because it's we want to check a box and we want to you know cover our behinds or whatever however you want to think of it um well in my opinion, then that person needs to be encouraged to be around. Like I need to, I need to see the players when they're eating meals. I need to see the players when they're training in the weight room. I need to see the players when they're, when they're training on the field, I need to be present for these guys or these girls all the time. Like I just have to be around. They need to look at me as, okay, that's, that's the person. And, and I've seen it before where they have a sports psychologist quote unquote uh, on staff who sees the players way less than the team chaplain because the team chaplain's around you know? <laughs> and and so it's whether it's psychology versus religion that argument i'm not going to get into that but it's one of these things where it's like the the chaplain's around he's he's at he's he's going to every game he's he's talking before games he's around the players he's constantly just getting a pulse of what these guys are going to so who's going to be their main driver of who they're going to go to it's probably going to be the chaplain versus the psychologist because the psychologist just sits in the office and says, come see me. I'll give you a profile of mood states and we'll figure out where you're at and I'll show you your results and we'll do this and that. And it's like, well, no, I think like the, to me, the perfect uh, sports psychologist, to your point, Fergus, is somebody who was a, was, a, was a former coach, former player, somebody who just understands the game and specifically in that game with which they're involved. It's not, I just studied generally speaking sports psychology and I push up my glasses and I talk about these, these psychological concepts. No, somebody who's integrated and well, just familiarized with everything that goes into the game. And if you, if they were a former player, it's great because they've, especially if they've been at the highest level, they understand what these guys are going through and they can talk from that experience. And uh, I just think that, that that's beneficial, but I agree with what you're saying, Fergus, that if, if it's somebody who can lend a voice to those who are, most impacting the players just by default whether it's the head coach or the strength coach or whoever else that might be the most optimal way to do it as well but i think think about now with with how the changing dynamics are i don't know how it is for you lima in college football at, at your level but being in the power five level now with with nil and some of these other things coming up just to give an example of the stress of what's going on with nil forget about like the parental influence of oh, you need to go you know make $500,000 a season for your family and things like that. Forget about the stress of that. Think about the fact of there's a website, maybe multiple websites. I know there's at least one where if I'm a power five college football player, I can type my name in there and it will tell me my annual worth in dollars wow. for what I contribute <laughs> to the game of college football, you know, and it goes from $50,000 or less to, over $2 million is my annual net worth. So these guys are looking at this like, 
Well, that's my ask. Is it one for strength coaches? What's that? Is it one for strength coaches? I need to start a collective. (laughs) You started. (laughs) The number's going to be way lower. (laughs) Don't blow. But But think uh, think about the stress of that, though. Like, it's just, you have the same guy. Like, I could be on the same team as, as you guys. And I'm looking at my number against your number. Now it's like, man, like there's just so many things that are impacting the, the psychology of the athletes that even in recruiting now, it's got, it's no longer about like, is this the right fit for me? Is this the right school for me? Is this what I want to do academically? You know, all of these things that it was in the past. Now it's like, yeah, this seems like a good fit. How much can you pay? Me? You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's it's not about what it was in the past it's a whole changing dynamic and so to the, the common theme of remaining remaining uh, adaptable agile just understanding these things if you if we can do more research into understanding just how humans operate in general we can funnel it to specific individuals from there i think that's the people who do that the best they understand the adaptability associated with a changing human behavioral component, they're going to stay ahead of everybody else. And that's the stuff that is, is tricky to learn, but I think it's, it's necessary for all of us to get an understanding of just how people operate in general. Yeah. I think, um, you know, regardless of the sport, the level, the country, the culture and you know, stating that the person that would be taking that role knows what they're doing. I think the key component to any role like that is trust. Whether you trust the person because he used to play the sport, because he shows up, you know, like showing up is half of the battle, but with no trust, there will be no sports psychology, right? It's not about getting uh, the visualization technique and the breathing technique and the and the title and the anything. No, it, it's true. Like, I'm not saying those things don't work. They, I'm definitely like, you work for some, on those. Work for some, some people, yeah. but next thing you've got a guy doing, you know, breathing work, journaling, meditation, visualization, <laughs> like now you've added more things to it. And I agree with Kat. I think, you know, I think you want somebody who understands uh, what the player is facing and you can't like, you mean, you can look to a former player, you can look to a veteran, you can look to somebody who has excelled in another sport. I um, hired two, uh, I guess, mental performance coaches, I wouldn't call them psychologists, but I remember the two things I told them was, I've got two, two rules. One, do not tell, do not talk to the player about their game. Like don't coach them on the game. You can tell them if they've got an issue around stress or anxiety, Give them an example from when you played, but don't don't coach them. That's the coach's job. So don't don't blur that line. And the second thing is, uh, at practice, do not stand beside a coach. You can stand anywhere you want. Just do not stand beside a coach. Because sure as heck, if I've gone, if I've been having coffee with the guy over breakfast, telling him about something I'm going through, and I go out to practice and I see him standing beside the head coach, doesn't matter what he says, I'm still thinking he's talking to the head coach about what we just spoke about. But, and that comes back to that trust, build that trust and be a, uh, sometimes as well, um, there's a famous story about uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, during the emancipation, it was around Christmas time. He was, you know, the, the newspapers, some of the newspapers were saying, oh, you, you know, you have to free the slaves. Some of them were saying, oh, you shouldn't. Um, so he called a friend of his uh, from Springfield, Illinois, who came over to the White House and they sat in the White House all day 
sat around the fire. And all Lincoln did was read the newspaper articles. He would read letters. And uh, as his friend, his old friend was heading back to, in the carriage, he realized that through the whole day, Lincoln never asked him for his opinion. And the, the moral of the story is sometimes players just want someone to listen to them and not judge. Sometimes that's all that that person's gonna do. And that can be invaluable because coaches are, can be so busy with everything that's going on. Sometimes it's hard for the sports coach or even the strength coach to make that time. So having a resource like that, that players can hang out with, have a laugh and speak to is, is invaluable. I mean, I would put my two cents in there that I, I think it's not just the sports psychologist. It's all of them. It's, you know, I've heard about a nutritionist from one of my colleagues where he had her come and talk to the team every Monday because he was like, listen, how good would our athletes be if, you know, practice or weightlifting was optional? And I was like, oh, obviously not good. He goes, well, that's how it is with nutrition here. He's like, obviously, it's not like they're on their own and it's not Kara Allard. He's like, so I'm going to put it at the end of the lifting on this day where the nutritionist is going to come down and we're going to schedule these talks. And it was the same premise that everybody's talking about now, like just to be around and just to build that relationship and force that Um so I think it matters, you know, again, for, for all of us, whether it's athletic training, whether it's the strength and conditioning coach, Cam, that was hilarious talking about the sports performance of the title because it has gotten outrageous. Um, but you could even say it with the, with the sport coaches, right? Because if a sport coach isn't around after practice because they are just simply watching film, um, it, it's not going to matter. So, yeah, you just have to be around. And it made me think of, a book, I don't know if any of you guys have read it before. I think it was called The Like Switch. L-I-K-E, not light, but like. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of like getting people to like you by just being around and you're not always, as a strength coach, you're not just around giving them news about strength and conditioning or so-and-so with like, no, you're just around and they're used to seeing you and you're not just delivering bad <laughs> news. You're just around and you're a part of the organization and you're there and you know, hearing you guys talk about being willing to just watch film and just be around them and be a voice like, or excuse me, an ear to listen, because if you want to be interesting, right, you need to be interested in the other person, right? And, and that what I've been working on myself and trying to, to learn too. Something else, just real quick in relation to uh, a global team psychology that I find really fascinating. And it, and it, ties perfectly into not only being present, being around, being integrated, but also just listening without even saying anything, just paying attention um, and hearing what's going on around the team is, I read a paper, I can't remember how they studied it or what the mechanisms or methods were associated with the paper, but it was a psychological based paper in relation to team, uh, team dynamics. And essentially what, what they concluded was that those who had the most impact on the team psychology, it wasn't the head coach, nor was it the team captains, but it was all of the murmurs around the locker room. All of the people who just, they, they had these little murmurs, these little opinions and things, and, and those, where, which way are those swaying? Are they primarily negative? Because at that point, it doesn't even matter what the head coach says, 
or the team captain, if they can't change the murmurs to be positive and in line with where the team wants to go, it's not going to get there. And so it's, it's all of the little murmurs of the people that are not leaders that actually impact the, the global psychology of, of the team. And I thought that that was really fascinating because if you were somebody who was in a leadership position and you just brought in other leaders, like, hey, I'm going to bring in, you know, I'm a head coach, I'm going to bring in my offensive coordinator and say, hey, you know, how's the offense doing? <laughs> my scheme looks great. Everything's looking good. Yeah, whatever. Okay. I'm going to bring in my quarterback. Who's a team leader, team captain. How, how's the team doing? What's the opinion of, of you and all of that. And so a lot of times these guys who are, who are players who are leaders are, are so uh, narrowly focused on accomplishing what they need to accomplish that maybe even they miss the murmurs and things like that. So it's not really even about just asking somebody, Hey, what are the murmurs in the locker room? That could maybe be beneficial, but it's about, are people present enough to just hear those murmurs in general? You know, like, are you integrated? If you want to know what's going on in the team, go talk to the equipment manager. That's a yeah, great point. I, I know a guy actually works with one of the uh, big apparel companies. And when they would, you know, before they would sign a player, that was, forget about the head coach. He had very, very good relationships with the equipment managers. And he would call them up and say, hey, I think assigning this guy obviously to a multi-million dollar deal. Now I'm not saying the equipment manager was the only guy that, you know, <laughs> but but his his say was what's what's the guy like you know off the field? You know what are we not seeing? But yeah, if you want to know, you it's it's about uh, knowing what's happening on the grassroots. You know, here it's, it's our it's our like low level student assistant athletic trainers that hear everything. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's that's something interesting that you brought up because, you know, I don't have that roster of 120 anymore. Yeah, I had it when I was at Iowa, right? It's it's closer to that 100 number. <laughs> but, I mean, to think that I'm going to have an amazing relationship with 100 student athletes, like we, we just know that that's not possible. And the ability to have those different levels of relate, first of all, you need to empower your subordinates to have those great relationships as well. So that way they can touch and you can get that continued message. But when you can continue to have the different levels with those students, you know, the student interns, whatever, whatever, you, whatever level it is, but okay, they're a lot closer and they're going to. What's up strength coaches want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor team builder. Team builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the link down below and find out more information let's get back to the show hear the things and they're going to listen to the players and then you have the assistants and then the head guy those three different levels and by the time okay if i'm hearing it you got to know it's for sure thing going on but then how as you know the director the person that is removed from it um it reminds me of my days i have my bachelor's degree in criminal justice and the thing that it was called was street level bureaucrats so if the, you know, the, the higher powers in the court say that this is a law, but if the lower level cops and whatever don't enforce it, where they're really 
the bureaucrats, the ones that are really, you know, creating law. And it just made me think like, you know, the, those people that might be, you know, lower than you, but they're really your subordinate leaders, they're going to know exactly what's going on and how important it is to have that relationship with them, as well as, you know, the captains and all the other people to hear the murmurs. That's a really good point. So one of the things that I stress a lot with my clients, both in performance directors in sport, but even uh, leaders in, in the tech space is you want to, you have to stay out of the middle. So you, if you're a leader, a team leader, you have to be able to lead and then allow and facilitate your staff to do their job and skip that wrong because that's their responsibility, obviously check in with them, but then to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening on the ground. And sometimes we get caught up in the middle bit and we miss that, you know, players are unhappy. And like you said, Justin, if you hear about it, you know, if it filters up to you from, it's too late at that stage. Yeah. And, that, and th that's a really interesting thing when it does happen, because then the question is, why did I not hear about that? Was that, was that an issue? Are they intimidated by me? Are they scared? Do they not want to tell me? Are they trying to undermine what I'm doing? Like, so you, you almost, you want to stay out of the middle bit. And it, like, why would you, why would you have a great staff and not allow them to do their job? Let them do their job and then be around to pick up, you know, that friction and murmurs that, that are happening. That's a really, really um, valuable piece that I think a lot of coaches, particularly as they progress, they miss, forget, or just ignore, aren't even aware of. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, like, why would they? Because clearly it's important. Like, it's not not important, but it's, is it, is it truly one of the soft skills because it seems softer to do? Or, or what is it? Because it is so empowering. Because if you think about it from that detached point of view, clearly it helps you do everything else. It helps you with your X's and O's. It helps you with the ability to connect and relate to your athletes and get them to want to do the maximum. Like, it just... It seems to make so much sense, but why would you not want, you know, to empower those, um, you know, those good assistants? And as I'm talking, it's like clearly it'd just be an ego thing, right? Like my ego doesn't want to to let go of the reins because I want to stay in control. Yeah, you're. I remember, uh, remember, coach saying to me a long time ago, and he meant it. He said, I, "You know, I want you to be better than me." You know, and you really your staff, you want them to be a better speed coach, better strength coach those that are working for you in that area, you want them to be better. You don't want to be managing them, directing them all of the time. That's that's why, you know, for the last two years, I, I might have uh, presented on it to, uh, to Altus a few years ago. To me, the, the term is performance facilitator at the highest level. My job, if I've got a strength coach, I want to facilitate him doing his job better, not be on top. So I like and you probably, some of you guys might have seen it. I draw the uh, the the um, staff structure upside down purposely. Like my staff mm. are at the top, not you know the way it's usually the other way around the pyramid. Yeah, invert, invert the pyramid. Your job yeah. is to facilitate the staff, and at the top are the players, because you you, you can't you can't fix every problem. You want to be able to empower um, empower your staff to do their job, but I, I think. I think a lot of the things that we spoke about today come back to this desire to adopt a reductionist approach to everything rather than seeing psychology as part of strength and conditioning to your point about nutrition. 
you know, mm. if the strength staff are aware of what are happening, they can support the nutritionist. Like you might lift a barbell five days a week, but you lift a fork, fork five, 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 five times a, a day, you know? So it is important. It's really important. And if you've got a strength staff that know what the nutritionist is trying to do, they can support them and give feedback rather than just being, again, you talk about the psychologist in a room, the nutritionist is in the room next to them with the door locked. You know what I mean? It's, you, you know, I know uh, when, when Aaron Wellman, was like, <laughs> Aaron Wellman, my, my head strength coach here, my boss here, he, he had a guy on staff who was an assistant strength coach, but he was also their director of nutrition. And yeah. I'm you have to have that perfect marriage uh, position, but he spoke about just how important that was where this guy was so involved in, in everything that he knew right away. Like, I know exactly the type of training we did. We go get this kind of fuel right now to, to replenish with everything we just did in the lift. Or, you know, I know this guy so uh, intuitively and, and just so organically that and holistically that I know exactly how to get through to him to tell him what kind of foods he should probably focus on. And, and they could go, you know, and it's, they had a great physical structure of the building where it's like, I go right from the weight room, let's go to the dining hall now and let's talk about everything we were just going over in the lift. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're breaking down a lot of muscle here. Let's go get some protein. And, you know, it's just, just the benefit of having that. Um, you know, to, to your point, I think it's, it goes back to integration. It doesn't have to be that there's a strength coach who's got a degree in both, but it's just sort of the general concept of, of integrating it. I love the pyramid thing, by the way, Fergus, because I just thought about this. I'm not saying it's super profound or anything, but just the... Uh, I'm <laughs> the, stealing that too, the, don't worry. The, I'm, the, I'm the, totally the, stealing that. The, the symbolism of how, like, if the, the leader's at the top of the pyramid, just the way gravity works, he's pushing everybody down, whereas if he's on the bottom, <laughs> he's lifting everybody up. So, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you guys the, the diagrams because the other part of that is that each of your staff. So the way that I would do it is that each of your strength staff, and I might have mentioned this the last time, have a primary responsibility, but they also have a secondary and a tertiary responsibility. Yeah. And that saves you having to bring, like the other thing too is cost. If you bring in a full-time nutritionist, full-time uh, psychologist, you're adding more voices, it's more cost. Well, why not take that money and upskill some of your staff? They don't need, you know, they don't need to be a world expert. They know who to, they need to know who to refer a guy who has a severe uh, gut issue out to. Yes, but you don't need that person on staff all the time. Same yeah. with psychology. Um, I say, to be honest, the same with sports science. Like Cam and I have spoken a lot about the importance of continuing to upskill everybody on the staff, rather than paying an intern thirty grand a you know a year or whatever peanuts you can afford. Stick him in a dark room with a laptop <laughs> and an Excel spreadsheet. Like it, it but it's. It's true. That's, but again, that's part of that reductionist approach. How, what, what's the least amount of money we can pay someone to do a really important job and keep them, and they're all isolated and they end up being isolated. But it's the same with like sports science now, in many cases, is simply, uh, you know, Excel spreadsheet and GPS. You know, there's, there's a lot more to it. And being able to have that iterative process of improvement so everybody's at least talking and collaborating. That's where everybody learns and grows. Well, one of the things, as you talked about the GPS and the video from earlier, was, again, I still remember what you said at that uh, conference where it's not just, okay, hey, here's the GPS report. It's what are the game moments? Like, sure, so-and-so hit max velocity, but at what point did it happen? Did it happen at an important enough time? Like, yes. 
yeah where's the context because without it we're just looking at numbers yeah i remember i remember one of the teams i wasn't there for it i was consulting with a team but the uh guy calls me one of the strength coach calls me and he was telling me how so practice had ended and uh he was looking around and there were like four guys over and they had walked down to the far corner of the field and they were talking to this young intern the sports science guy who had live gps and they were looking at him and then they all turned around they, got, they lined up and then they sprinted as hard as they could to the rest of the team like i said what the fuck's going on here it's the end of practice he goes oh the, the guys they felt their sprint numbers were down i went so so the guys are doing useless sprinting at the end of practice probably going to ping a hamstring just so they can get their high speed distance up but you got to look at it in context but again that comes back to it comes back to just intelligent problem solving one last point on that as well, whether it's psychology, nutrition, sports science, no, nobody is presenting an answer, They're presenting a question. I see this, this is happening. What do the rest of you think? How do we solve this together? Like the idea that a GPS report is a conclusion, uh, you, you're fucked man. Like, Have any of you guys stumbled. heard the term uh, transdisciplinary approach rather than like interdisciplinary? That was first... It was explained to me by physical therapists or the chiropractor <laughs> on staff here where they were like, no, it's not like, oh, this person's in charge at this point and then the continuum. It's no, we're all looking at the same problem at the same time through our different lenses to be able to collaborate together. Five yeah. men and an elephant, right? Or five blind men and an elephant. <laughs> yeah. Holy. That's, yeah. That's, that's what you, that's what you end up, that's yeah. what you... That's what you end up with rather than viewing everything as to be honest it's the most exciting part of our industry is problem solving you know we you've got this little piece of data the the other really important thing about just about gps is gps data is an indicator it's not it's not a final point it's an indicator so you're measuring something that indicates possibly the speed you know, so you've got all this data that indicates or suggests. That's where it stops. Now you've got to take that and look at it and figure out. You've got to watch practice and go, it indicates or it suggests that we ran a lot or that we didn't. Let's look at practice. Does it add up? Like we had a, um, I remember looking at game data, you know, and certain players hitting max speed in games. But when you would actually go and watch the film, you realize this dude is out of position. He's not even reading the game. He's sprinting like crazy. Of course, he's hitting max speed. He's hitting max speed because he's out of position. He hasn't read the game. Yeah, Higginbotham had a post where it was like, it, <laughs> it was like when a DB hits 22 miles an hour in a game, it was like, boy, I get burnt. Like, yeah, exactly. exactly. And the, the other one then was when we looked at certain players who never hit max speed in the game. And the coaches are complaining that we haven't trained them or they're not fast enough. But when you watch the film, they're at that sub-optimal speed. And I know, I know I'd know, have thrown it out there about max speed and how important it is. Trust me, by the time you've read the game, moved into position, accelerated, blah, 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 then I'll worry about your, your max speed. But there's a whole ton of other things before you worry about hitting max speed or speed zones. Yeah, most but, most yeah. players, it, what, it takes about, what, 40 meters to get up to max speed for a, for a player? Yeah. How many players get a straight run at 40 meters in any game? The, not even um, soccer fernando yeah the, the the trans department is very modern uh view from from justin <laughs> very uh up to date with the um very current progressive. situation 
but yeah, very progressive. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. But I think it also leads to um, sometimes a lack of responsibility and accountability. You know, if we all have a say about everyone's job or we can all share, then no one really says, you know, stepping up is like, I'm going to take this or I'm going to take that. Doesn't mean it can't change or it cannot vary from one to the other, but there's just everyone on everything is just a bit confusing. Uh, also, well, but, but, but everybody can solve the problem together and then they have responsibility for it. That's why exactly. having you know primary roles well you're the person responsible for it exactly. you know and so you're answerable to and others have to support you and that become but ultimately you know as a backroom team you have to win games like the worst case scenario is you know you lose a game and everybody comes in and they're sitting around the table and they're going well it wasn't my fault it was the strength coach's fault nutritionist is thinking well i have them lean psychologist is going we spent lots of dark moments in rooms you know what I mean? Everybody's pointing fingers. Then when you win, everybody's going, well, it's down to the I did it. Yeah. It was they strained warm. their rotator cuffs, patting yeah. themselves but, on the but, back. But you know how you always learn the importance of those dynamics when you see real life scenarios in which it's not about winning or losing, it's about living or dying. So when you distribute roles and say, who's going to be the first responder? Who's going to drive the van? Who's going to hold his head? That's where you see like the importance of every role, and that's the um the importance of accountability. And uh, going back to the GPS, I think sometimes, especially in sport nowadays, I know we we swing pendulum like, but it's not the technology the problem. The problem is the use of interpretation. So a hammer can build a house or it can murder someone. Yeah, it's not the hammer's fault. It is. Tr it's true. It's not. No, I used to. I, I used to. I used to say, I, like, I'm a pretty good artist. <laughs> you, you can give me. That's you can awesome. give me. You you can give me Michelangelo's paintbrushes, and I couldn't paint the garden fence with. It's it. the no. Indian, not the arrow. That's what my dad told me when I used to try to tell him <laughs> that I needed to get the fancy basketball shoes. He's like, "Bro, you suck at basketball. But, it has nothing yeah, to do I've with seen, the shoes you wear." I've seen coaches. It, it, sorry, Mike. It's not about the shoes. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I've seen coaches not wanting to jet, uh, share the GPS data because they think. Or they know, or it might happen, that the players might try and manipulate their work. But also, because I know they've tried to uh, put some pressure on a player saying, you know, you're not running enough. And the player would be like, yes, I am. You know, so it's just, but they're both wrong. But do you know what I mean? Like, it's just. I've been, not, I've, hmm. I've been at teams where I, like, yeah, I kept the GPS locked in a box gathering dust because I just knew if I presented to that head coach, it'd be a circus. Like, you mean it'd just be run them into the ground more? No. It's about, the, it's about the interpretation. I think that's the importance of why why I fell in love with, with the idea of a four coactive model and and abiding by it. I think a lot of issues with, with sports science in particular is that um, they're always chasing more. You know, like it's it's kind of a problem in, in sports performance and in sports science. It's, it's always about more. You know, how can I get faster? How can I get stronger? How can I get more powerful? And I think, yeah, to a degree, like, so to me, what, I, what I'm more fascinated by at this point in my career is almost establishing these baselines of what's considered good. This would be great if he could run a 4-3. But if he runs a 4-4-5, that's pretty good. You know, so it's like almost like establishing what do we consider good? And then what do we consider a true rate limiter to that man's performance in terms of uh it's holding him back on the field of play and so i think that that's that's where my head's going now with a lot of the sports science and the metrics and things like that it's not about getting them to go up 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 and up it's more about 
trying to ensure that we've removed as many physical constraints as we can. So if we use a proxy or some kind of metric to dictate speed, strength, power, okay, like, is it, is it so low now that we can infer, to Fergus's point, we can infer now that he's just so slow, like he doesn't stand a chance on the field, or he's just so weak, he's just going to go out there and get hurt, or he's so small, or whatever. So if that's a true rate limiter to that performance, let's alleviate that, right? And sure, we can continue to chase improvements, right, in, in, in any of these factors. But I think if you look at the whole picture now of a four-coactive model, and you think of it in terms of removing constraints from that player's performance, so removing the limiting factors and the lymphac or rate limiter, whatever word you want to use, I think now it's about how can we just – it's kind of like the, the statue of David, right? There was a block of just concrete or marble. And like, how do we remove the proper parts <laughs> of that marble to unveil the statue of David? And so that's sort of how I'm thinking about it now with athletes is how do we, how do we remove rate limiters to expose what their genetic capabilities are or their skill capabilities and all these things. And so if we have these conversations with coaches about, you know, they want to point fingers and things. I think it's important we keep meticulous records and data and things like where if our particular uh, assignment now as and my role is to make sure they're physically fit to play the game, I need to be able to prove that with records. Of course, that's important. But now we can have the conversation about like this guy just can't seem to drive the guy off the line of scrimmage in American football. Why is that? Well, I can tell you like every strength and power metric we have, he's he's off the charts in terms of these things, whether it's a vertical plane, horizontal plane, whatever. Um, okay. So let's look at it. Technically, is he achieving the proper leverage to even uh, take advantage of his physical capabilities and take advantage of physics or something like that? If it's no, okay, well, we can infer maybe it's a technical issue. Let's alleviate that. If all, if, if he doesn't even know who to block, it's a tactical issue right he doesn't even know his assignment so it, it doesn't matter like how so so now we're looking at it from a tactical lens and if all those other things aren't the issue and he's still not getting it done well we see him in practice every day he's got great leverage he knows what he's doing he's strong as hell and for whatever reason on the game he just can't get it done maybe then we infer it's a psychological issue and we alleviate that and so that's where i think the power of the four, four coactive model really comes into play is looking at it not isolatedly in these different categories but transdisciplinarily is that is that a word and then, um, <laughs> I, I mean i made it up you're good you're good that's where you're hashtag progressive yeah that, that's where your <laughs> your four or five guy that you spoke about right you want to get him down to four three but you don't need to because he plays like a four three guy you know yes. and then and then the other thing is of course like what's the risk or reward for getting him to stroke your ego by running four three like like you know what's what like what are you gonna what are you gonna do so it's again how do you pull all of those things together well Kier, yeah i mean kira said it before he's like look if you play receiver in your five two like chances are you're not gonna be able to play receiver in the nfl if you're four six four seven you could probably could if you're four two it doesn't mean you're first round hall of fame like it's it's the well, minimum we've barrier seen, to we've, entry. Seen, we've seen so many of those haven't we in the combine guys who blow away times and then you know they don't even know where to be or that but it's it's again to cam's point it's how all of those things play together and how they co can compensate as well i mean 
I'm not going to start listing a whole. There's a ton of players, you know, from Anquan Bolden to Jerry Rice, who, by their own admission, were not fast, but they played fast, read the game, and so many other. You know what I mean? I so mean, Desmond King people. was an example of that for me. Like Desmond King, at his pro day, I think you know he he didn't run well at the combine. I think he was four five five, or people were like knocking on him. In second year in the league, he's first team All Pro uh, slot like as that DB, that new nickel position, and then second team punt returner. So like apparently he's a Cooper Cup. I mean, that's been your yeah. example from from Game Changer for a while. Like well, we're, we're, also, we're also making the assumption that for certain positions, you know, max speed or top end speed or whatever is the defining factor. That's highly questionable. It's highly yeah. questionable. I think um, also building on Cam's point <coughs> and then taking a couple of steps back because we talked about problem solving, we talked about relationships and staff and players, but if we actually try to understand the whole thing that wraps everything, and this might be me pitching a book idea to Fergus, but there are correctives, <laughs> Pitch right, away. There are correctives <laughs> right, that are outside all this because we are assuming that as staff, we want to collaborate to aim for performance. But sometimes the stakeholders have different interests that don't really go with performance. They go, you know, with keeping your job. With, oh, don't, 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 uh, don't even, don't, Fernando, don't even get me started on that. Like, there's so many different <laughs> layers. On, but, but you know what I mean? Actually, you know no, what no, I mean? No, like, but you're, you're right. Like, for even go, go on above. There's a, there's a franchise, there's an NFL team or NBA team. Is there a goal to win games or profit? Yeah, we talked about it. I said it to an owner once. I said, look, you've got two types of people coming through your gate every morning. People are coming to work to keep their job and people are coming to work to do their job. Exactly. So if you're going to go and say, hey, as a, as a strength and conditioning coach, I think we fit, but we need to work on some other stuff. People are going to be like, oh, we don't need you. Oh, that's great. There you go. <laughs> you'd be like oh but i did the right thing for everyone's good it's like <laughs> yeah there you go do you know what i mean so it's just it's I, I can sum it up in saying sometimes when you are having a heated argument with someone one of you might be trying to find a new solution where the other one might be trying to win the argument oh, i've seen listen i've seen it with well, i can think of one nfl team like i mean you got sports scientists throwing theater around like i mean trying to make in, you know, I end up talking to the head coach and I'm going, dude, you know, you know, like he's quoting back to me what's come from the sports scientist. And I'm going, coach, you know that this number doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? But oh, and I thought it was really important. I'm going, no, this nonsense. But but again, you've got people making certain things more important to keep their job, but they're not actually improving the team. And so that's one of the big challenges that you have in the in the industry. But that's that's the game. Don't don't hit the player. <laughs> it is. It is like what are you working for? Like I, I hear the word like <coughs> around so much. So you don't even know what rights means. What are you aiming for? Like what's what like you said, are you winning? Are you playing to win or are you playing for profit? So what's the point? Because fans will bash on the players for results, but then the club's not really working for that. But then you get paid that much to still step out on the pitch. So who cares about your feelings? So you end up, you know. Well, look at look at um, look at the names that certain teams, you know, either draft by or, or recruit or whatever. You know, is it um, from 
a business perspective, a lot of it revolves around entertainment. Uh, I, listen, I said it many years ago, wrote in Game Changer, in my opinion, the most advanced sport in the world is WWE wrestling. It gets it. It's an entertainment business. You know, you, people might not like to hear that and whatever, but it's like that, that, that um, you know, that dial has shifted a lot more towards, uh, hey, just look at social media in our industry. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I think going back to what you guys said about the hammer though, it's just like anything else is it, it's nothing more than just a, a hammer or a screwdriver in your toolbox or a force plate or a, a tent. Like it's hearing all of this and hearing what you guys were just talking about reminded me of a conversation I had with DeMeo the other day where it's like, how much of this is really just Fugazi Fugazi. And it's just make the kids feel good and that's not just like oh tell them whatever they want to hear and just pamper them but it's like like okay let's lift some heavy weight like okay it's bilateral this kid wants a load on his back this kid wants the debt like at the end of the day like how can you just make sure that the kids feel good feel empowered feel like they understand what's going on so that way we're uh, not just checking the boxes but if we look at our four coactives like technically okay do they understand what they have to do at their position yes let's figure out how you got to coach them to get that done tactically do they understand how that fits within the scheme of the offense defense special teams or transitions within the other games yes physically do they feel strong whether they want to bench or board press or whatever it is yes <laughs> psychologically do they feel that they're being heard and they're valued yes like how like are they being fed do they just feel that they're a part of that tribe do they have their circle of safety like i don't know because it, it just makes me think even more about this research study that um i had been you know running and doing in years past where it was like all right how do we look at you know sleep stress nutrition what affects performance as measured on a vertical jump and a balance and it was like we didn't find one thing right like and that's where jay was like how much of it is really just making sure that the kids feel good feel empowered and feel like their voices has been heard in the process well, that's back to my point about, you know, the things that we measure are indicators, you know, they're proxies for, you know, the things that are going on, you, making really severe conscious decisions, you got to be careful, be very, very careful, there's so many factors mixed into it. Um, and, you know, now at NIL, particularly at college, like that's changed everything. And it's going to have an effect in the NFL as well. Like some players are going to go, do I, do I want to go to the league straight away? You know, it's already happening, by the way. Really? It is? That, it, because back to your point, like it, it hasn't trickled down. So if, you know, the, it's at least not here for me, but that's crazy. No, it's 100% happening where you're you're seeing guys come back for a fourth or fifth year because <laughs> they've secured an NIL deal to give them basically the same money they would make if they were just on an active roster in the NFL. So they're like, well, I have one more year of college eligibility. This is fun. And I'm making money, the same money I'd make pros. Let me prolong it for one more year. You know, isn't and, and that I'm better hurt. though here? Like, you know, cause I remember like in college basketball and I'll be quick and I'll let you talk again. But I remember in college basketball, I was like, Oh, the one and done ruins college basketball versus like the developmental model. Like, well, now doesn't this keep a kid in college longer, which makes it better? Possibly. I don't have an answer. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they get another year of maturity as well. 
True. Yeah, I think it's just like you're gonna start. You're gonna start to see that less and less guys, especially at top schools, go as juniors. You know, like the Alabama football and some of these uh, big time programs where it's almost like a three and done in, in college football as well as <laughs> basketball. I think you're really gonna start to see the the those guys stay for a fourth, possibly fifth year if they have one. Um, but certainly all four years, it, it, whether or not they're at the same school the whole time or not simply because oh, oh i can i can stay in college one more year and get paid a lot of money why why would i go into the, the workforce of the professional life of being a, a pro athlete if i can stay here for one more year maybe get one more degree and then i can go you know so it's is, yeah I, I don't know if this has always been this way but i have the feeling that sport is not about sport anymore is it like and it's, it's something <laughs> it's true it sounds dumb but it's true because it's something that has such a high subjective value for people if you look at world cups you look at like what you put in to sacrifice for results at the end of the day like like fergus said like it might be a business so so glory is kind of an illusion because you like aiming for all these things and all these um coactives and then the stakeholders and, and at the end of the day it's not about you know catching a ball in a in a specific area or putting the ball through a hoop anymore it's just about all these other things and here we are fighting about performance and indicators and, and all and taking care of people and like all these things when we don't really know where we're aiming for like as snc well, you know, so so to that point fernando i think a, a number of years ago the the big phrase was talent development and then it became a case of talent id you know how can we spot talent because we don't develop talent as well anymore uh, now what you're seeing is brand development at colleges. People are, oh, come here and we'll develop your brand. The next thing you're going to start to see, if it hasn't started already, is brand ID. Who is a kid who can play the game but also has the potential to be a great brand? Um, you know, their look, their appearance. There's a phenomenon, I forget the name of it, but it's around, uh, it was to do with agents going watching, or sorry, uh, scouts going watching soccer players around the country. Chances are, if the kid was like a seven or eight year old, if he had blonde hair, he was going to stand out more. He was going to be picked more often, but just because he stood out, you know what I'm saying? So what you're going to see now is you're going to see people are going to look for, it eventually will get to that stage. But uh, just to your point, Fernando, as well about that, I think you have, it's important to distinguish between sport, um, entertainment, and then performance. And the one thing that unites all of us is performance. We're, yeah, we love the sport, but we're genuinely interested in the performance side. And that that has shrunk incredibly, in my opinion. Like true teams where the true goal is to improve the overall performance. I think as well, just to quickly butt in, um, and we wrote about it in, in one of the process books. I can't remember which one. It was whichever one we discussed this exact topic of is it about winning games or is it about profit? And because um, I felt it would be an interesting chapter to, to put in there where I think ultimately something I wrote in there is that it all still circles back to winning games because you can go on for a while and continue to make profits and things like that. But ultimately, if games aren't, <laughs> then players are going to be traded. They're going to be asked to transfer. Coaches are going to be fired. So all really all the people involved, except for those at the very top, you know, the, the, the owner of the team maybe, or the, the school president or something like that, right? Maybe it's less 
impactful for them, but all of the other people involved, you know, the coaches and GMs and all that stuff, if, if they're not winning, they're going to, they're going to lose their jobs. And so I think that, well, you know, well the, the, the difference there, that is a difference between college and pro. And I think that at the professional level, because you've got 32 teams sharing an overall profit, the goal is to promote the product, which is the league as a whole. And of course there's differences, but I think, I think you're right. I think that like, I'm not, nobody's going in there to, nobody's going to lose, you know, nobody's trying to lose. But when it comes down to it at certain points, you often ask yourself, is it profit or, or wins and losses? I think it's the second book, Justin. Gotcha. The start of the second book, I think. Um, yeah, from high school to college professional. I mean, that, that makes sense too. Like The secret <laughs> business of college football. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but I assume uh, if it's like, uh, because I think I broke it down in there, like how, that the the projected worth of a five-star yeah signing <laughs> for for a college football team like how much yeah the, can... the giants and the rams when you wrote this were bad but they made a ton of money <laughs> well yeah. if you look at if you look at the top if you look at the top five uh teams in terms of wealth in the nfl i think only one of them has won a super bowl in the last five six years which i mean shit the cowboys suck i'll say it like but but well that's that's my that's the that is the classic example of a um even even the giants are up there in the top five so as a brand as a brand in terms of you know it's worth um you know that there what the the fundamental point is there is no correlation between the worth of a team and wins and losses. Yeah, you want to talk about no correlation? How about the health of a team and wins and losses? Oh, that's yeah. a whole new can of worms. Yeah, like you mean, you see it all. The most uh, important ability is availability. Oh, fuck it. Come on, you know what I mean? It's just it's one of those things that you throw out there, and people talk about. Oh, we had fewer players injured. Well, you didn't win a game. You know what I mean? Or we had, <laughs> like. Uh, like nobody's going out. The to Niners are on their third string quarterback and just fucking won the division. There you go. So you look at the stats, it'd be brilliant to look at. But again, that's that's an example where well, they've been incredibly fortunate. And then you look at uh you look at the Cardinals and you know they lose a quarterback, you know, like that's a that's a tragedy this late in the season. You could look at uh the correlation between injuries and profitability <laughs> and affecting the bottom line of a team as well. If <laughs> if you have too many season ending surgeries, how much is that gonna cost the team? To, to pay out, you know, and some of the bottom line. So if we, if we want to look at a, another relationship, it's injuries and profitability. So there's that as well. Yeah, and then football's unique, of course, because you don't have guaranteed contracts. It's then it changes in, in baseball where I, I gave a talk in Boston years ago that the, I think actually on the day, the Times had these, this brilliant, it was a rolling tracker. And it was, when you went to their website, it showed how much money per minute like the Yankees were play were paying for injured players, and the figures are just ridiculous. Like you know, so I think it's like if if we can if we can say even if we say it's about profitability and building a brand and all of that, at some point it's going to be about to really build profitability. That team needs to be winning, and if that's the case, then in order to win, there's got to be a performance component. So I think it's about knowing that what we do is important in terms of having a place in the process. I just think it's, it's important to be careful not to over inflate that importance. Exactly. So yes. 
Yes. And that's that, that you and I have spoken about, Fergus, is yeah. just how our job is extremely important because it's not that important <laughs> in the in the grand scheme of things. Because if we over and what I mean by that is not to say that we're we're useless and we we're not needed. It's it's kind of it's obviously a joke, but if we over inflate our importance, we can bring the team down. And that's that's the problem is that we have to understand how we we build the team up in our place and everything else. That's that that's the that is the point, and I think it's important as well for for young coaches coming in just to be aware of that. I think it's very helpful to know, you know, like to your point, it's important, but it's not the only thing. And sometimes you can have that perhaps false perception that you know whether a guy gets another five pounds on the bar is going to determine whether you know the franchise wins or loses. Well, I mean, Kier Kier had a you know, a post probably two years ago now, because I think he was still at William and Mary, but it, it, it talked about, it was these two pictures of uh, people driving a race car. And the first picture was somebody, you know, behind uh, an F1, uh, F1, you know, race car, you know, and it was like, this is what, when I got into sport, how important I thought I was to the organization's success. And then the next picture was, of an adult playing with the child's like pretend car and he's like now i realize how important i am right like we're really just i guess it maybe goes back to what cochran used to say we're putting spinners on you right like we're just here to continue to support and um you know the things that make you great at sport are not the things that are going to make you great in the weight room like long limbs and long levers in the weight room probably aren't going to make for great squats and cleans and power cleans and all these other things that people get obsessed with, but I'll be damned. It's going to make you look like an avatar on the field and give you a hell of an advantage. If you want to be a good strength coach, you know, pick a team with good players <laughs> and just don't screw them up, you know, like, um, and, but you can listen. You can improve players, but you can certainly prevent injury. You can certainly prevent a lot of issues, um, and you can support them. It's not that a strength coach's role is not important. That's not the point. But it's just knowing how to be as effective as possible is is the the first thing I think you should you know concentrate on. And how do you back to Cam's thing about you know how do you pull everything together? Like you're making. Um, you're making a stew, you're making a soup. You're not, it's not, this is not a piecemeal thing. You know, you don't have somebody carrot, celery, bit by bit over, you know, seven courses. Everything has to mix together and it has to blend together. That's the outcome. And we've, we've talked, Fergus and I have spoken many times about <laughs> some of the legendary people in our field, the Charlie Francis, the Dan Path, the the Louis Simmons, even, you know, some of these, some of these legendary names that come out, when you look at what they're doing on paper, it's so simple. And it's because they understand the complex. And so they, they know where to trim the fat, so to speak, and attack these things that are most important to get the desired result that they want. And so because of their, it's not because they're simple-minded, it's just they understand the complexity so inherently that they now know what are what are all the low hanging fruits that I address, and I think that that is I've heard it said before, and it's so true. I think it's just as experience grows, it's it's trimming the fat. It's about okay, you know, my the program 
really become simpler over time because I understand things on a more complex level. It's sort of this this uh, this counterintuitive concept, but the it's the younger coaches with the lack of experience that stand up there at their first presentation, reading directly off the slides and just giving all of their their elaborate physiological understandings of like I'm going to go from this triphasic model into this and I'm going to do that and then it's because the this affects my testosterone output and so then I'm going to carry that into here and potentiate this and that those are the guys that like they don't get it yet you know and I'm not saying of course yes get it get as much of an understanding of underlying physiology as you possibly can because that's only going to help you then understand these these concepts right and so um it's about having such a, a complex network of ideas and concepts and, and you've educated <laughs> them so well that you now know you it's kind of like using all the data we would use in metrics and now have this data in my mind of these ideas of this experience and now i can infer that this is probably the best path to take at this particular moment with this particular person on this particular team and i take into account all of the constraints all of the ways in which i need to be agile in this moment in this situation to get from point A to point B. So to say I have I have the program, I'm gonna bring this everywhere I go is, is nonsense. It's just, it just won't work everywhere you go. It won't work based on whatever, you know, if you have differing head coaches if, who have completely different philosophies, you know, I need to be different in the way I approach my strength and conditioning at that standpoint. Um, you know, just the, the, the equipment that's available to me, the spacing that's available to me, you know, yeah. like, We've heard a, we had a young coach present and say, all right, then we're going to do this exercise. And then, and then our boss here was like, okay, but you have five machines and 40 players in the room. How are they all going to use? Yeah. yeah it's just <laughs> something like, you don't always think about is like just the layout of the room. Yeah. And like, how does that impact what I can do on paper? So it, it does come back to, you know, just what is the desired effect that I want to achieve? And then what's the best, best pathway given the constraints available to me to, in order to get that done. I think that that's, that's then where the experienced coach can understand his role in the process of all of that and, and, and use the heuristics he's developed over time through that experience to now, um, you know, take, take the best, best path forward in that moment, but all the while still continuing to learn as much as he can and continuing to be a student the entire time. That's why I say that, you know, 80% of your job is knowing what not to do. <laughs> No, but it is like, and it's, uh, forgive me if I've, I've given this example before, but I spoke about it first long time ago in Germany. I call it the, the uh, Omega paradox. So the Omega symbol is a straight line and then it goes up in this arc back around. And that's what your journey is as a coach. You come along Ooh. and then you, you, you go up and you learn all this, this shit. And then you, <laughs> if you're lucky, you know, you come back around to what Cam's talking about, you know, the Dan Path, the Louis Simmons approach where, it appears very simple because it almost appears like you're almost back to where you were, but you have the benefit of all of going through that big, long journey. And so you know now how simple to keep it. And you know, how, like, I mean, I remember going watching Dan, you know, coaching and, uh, you know, I was impressed by what he didn't do, you know, because I like, I mean, you're a young kid, you've got all these ideas. Oh, I do this, I do that. You know, like I'm, you're like a like a chimpanzee in the in, in the you know in a, in a in a in a car engine pulling wires or like a chimpanzee let loose at the back of a TV pulling things and you just no 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 calm down calm down I'll give him this one cue and it'll fix the three things that you're getting excited about you know 
and so that's that takes time to uh it takes time to understand and uh but that's and that's part of the journey as a coach of going making mistakes and learning and continuing to to learn and get better amen i don't think there's a better place to end it's been almost two hours this has been uh awesome the longest and uh <laughs> this has been the first ever two two-person uh cheeky midweek 